Luke chapter number two. Yes, it's in the New Testament, Abby. Luke chapter number two. For the next couple weeks, two or three, we are going to discuss. We're going to talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. Remember, Brother James got up and said that somebody, some preacher had said about him, Brother James, he doesn't even believe in the birth of Christ. Well, okay. There is a difference. Okay, there is a difference between not celebrating Christmas and not believing in the birth of Christ. Let's reiterate that this morning. The fact that we as a church do not do not celebrate the Christmas holiday does not mean we don't believe in the birth of Jesus Christ. We certainly believe in the birth of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful Bible doctrine that God was manifest in the flesh, born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem, and we believe it, we read it, we study it, we preach it, we rejoice in it, okay? There, there are all kinds of wonderful truths wrapped up in the entrance of Jesus Christ into this world, the Word being made flesh to dwell among us and all the rest of that. Certainly believe in and rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ. We are commanded to remember the death of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, we partake of the Lord's Supper. We show the Lord's death till he come. This do in remembrance of me, the broken body, the shed blood that, uh, that purchased our forgiveness and salvation. We are not commanded to celebrate his birth, but we're never prohibited from doing it either. So, the birth of Jesus Christ, I would say, is a wonderful thing to celebrate. It would just be kind of weird to celebrate the birth of Christ by doing things pagan did to worship their gods. That's, that's the position of our church. That's really not what I want to talk about in detail. Next week, I'd like us to look at the miracle of the incarnation, the virgin birth by which God entered the world in human flesh. But this week, I want to look at the timing of the incarnation, the timing of the birth of Jesus Christ. You're probably aware of the fact that I personally and as a church typically we don't believe that Jesus was born on December 25th. Now having said that, nobody knows for certain exactly what day it was that God made his entrance into this world. I cannot tell you dogmatically that it was September 21st or any other date you want to pick. I am quite certain that it wasn't December 25th. I don't know when it was. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure when it wasn't. And you've probably heard that a time or two, but do you know why? Let's look at the biblical reasons for that quickly this morning. Then I want to I show you something else prophetic that is really a blessing. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. How the, how the so-called Christmas story begins in Luke chapter 2 is with the Roman emperor decreeing a census and taxation. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth and Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem 
because he was the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary as a spouse's wife, being great with child. So Mary and Joseph have to make this pilgrimage, this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Caesar has decreed this taxation and census. There are many historians who say that this taxing would have never taken place in the winter months when travel, which this census necessitated, would have been extremely difficult. I can't prove that one way or the other, just like I can't prove that George Washington crossed the Delaware River or Abraham Lincoln got shot by John Wilkes Booth. I mean, you can't, if you're going to say you can't prove something because it's in history, then you have to kind of lump all of history into that category because none of us were there then, but somebody was there and they wrote about it. And so historians from the time say that taxing would not have taken place in the winter, which would have made it very difficult for Jesus to be born on December 25th. That makes sense? Okay. Anybody other than Lauren? That makes sense? Okay, good. Verse number six. So it was while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Boy, I bet the, I bet the innkeepers in Bethlehem would have missed, wished they would have made some room for the entrance of the Son of God into this world. But there he is, lying in a manger, being born of the Virgin Mary. Verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Why is it good tidings of great joy for all people? Because all people need a Savior. The good news was not that a king was born. The good news was not that a political ruler was born. The good news was that a Savior was born because mankind is plunged into sin and needs saving from outside of himself. And so what great tidings or good tidings of great joy, these angels brought the shepherds who, according to verse number 8, were keeping watch over their flock by night while they were abiding in the field. By the same token, there are many historians who say that shepherds would not have been in the fields with their flocks by night at that particular time of the year. If it's December, then the shepherds are not in the fields with the flocks. They are gathered into the sheep folds to get away from the cold and so forth. There's, there is some debate and there is some argument over that, but there are many who say this could not have taken place for that reason. Luke chapter 3, look at verse 23. I'm just going to give you three reasons why we believe. Well, I, actually, I'll give you four. Four reasons why I believe was not December 25th when Christ was born. Luke chapter 3 and verse 23, uh, back up verse number 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, thou art my beloved son in thee. I am well pleased. Here is Christ being baptized by John the Baptist, which really is the, is the introduction to the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He was known as the carpenter from the time he was born, growing up in Mary and Joseph's house. 
He apparently was an apprentice to his stepfather. He learned the carpentry trade. It was not until at this point when John announced him. Why did John baptize according to John chapter 1? To make manifest unto Israel the coming of the Messiah. John is the forerunner announcing that Christ is on the scene. What is the timing of all this according to verse 23 of Luke chapter 3? And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. When? When he was baptized by John, which event kicked off the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The Bible says he was 30 years old at the time. Now, I have never studied the full chronology. I am not sure how uh, biblical students arrive at this time frame, but I have never heard anyone argue that the ministry of Jesus Christ was anything other than three and a half years. I mean, all my life I've been told the ministry of Jesus Christ, the public ministry of Jesus Christ from his baptism to his crucifixion was three and a half years. Have you ever heard anything different? And again, I have not studied and I don't know how they add all of that up from the events of the gospel and come up with three and a half years, but three and a half years is what everybody who does that comes up with, right? Okay, so Jesus is crucified. This we know. Jesus is crucified on Passover. He is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Passover is a Jewish feast. It goes according to the Jewish calendar. It falls anywhere from late March to early April, typically March or April. It's kind of hard to fit six months, which is what half a year is. It's kind of, just in case you needed help. It's kind of hard to fit six months between late December and early April. Right? That's more like three months. And that's not half a year. That's a quarter of a year. That's half a half. You get what I'm saying? Why could Jesus not have been born on December 25th? Well, if he died at Passover and he was 33 and a half years old, then he hadn't quite made it to the half part yet. It's like trying to fit three days and three nights between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. <laughs> the math just doesn't add up. Okay? So why do, we, why do we not believe Jesus to be born on December 25th? Because there was a tax that would not have been decreed in the winter months. Because shepherds abiding in the fields with their flocks at night typically would not take place in December. Because Jesus was 33 and a half when he was crucified and you can't fit that all up on, between December 25th and, and early April at the latest. You at least have to back up two or three months which would put you late September. Okay? December 25th, here's why we believe Jesus was not born on December 25th, because of who was born on December 25th. It was known uh, by the pagans to be the celebration of the birth of uh, Tammuz, connection to Nimrod back there in Genesis chapter 10, which we'll not go into now. Let me give you the reasons, and, and, and I'm really, I'm, I'm going fast because I'm trying to get somewhere else. Let me give you the reasons why it was most likely late September and not late December. Why it was most likely late September and not late December. One, because the flocks are still in the field at nighttime in early autumn, according to most historians. Again, I, I wasn't there. I'm not a shepherd. 
or a meteorologist or really anything other than the preacher. I just became this by default, by process of elimination. Couldn't do anything else, so here we are. Sorry. <laughs> it was more likely to be a time for Roman taxation. It would allow for three and a half years of ministry prior to the crucifixion of Christ at Passover. But not only does it fit all the reasons why it couldn't be December 25th, there's also this. Get First Chronicles 24. Hold Luke. Get Luke 1 and First Chronicles 24. First Chronicles 24 and hold Luke chapter 1 because we'll be right back to Luke. First Chronicles 24. Look at verse number 1 with me. First Chronicles 24. And verse number one, we are given some detail here as to how David organized his kingdom. And not only the kingdom of Israel, but the temple worship as well. The Bible says, First Chronicles 24, Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eleazar and Ithamar executed the priest's office, and David distributed them... Both Zadok and the sons of Eleazar and Himelech, the sons of Ithamar, according to their offices and their service. And there were more chief men found in the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar, and thus were they divided among the sons of Eleazar. There were sixteen chief men in the house of their fathers, and eight among the sons of Ithamar, according to the house of their fathers. Sixteen plus eight is. Wow, I know you're off school because it's Sunday, but I think you can still do this. Emma, sixteen plus eight is. Good job, twenty-four. And the Bible says, air five, <laughs> verse number five, thus were they divided by lot, one sort with another, for the governors of the sanctuary and governors of the house of God were the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar, and Shimei, the son of Nethaniel, the scribe of the Levites, wrote them before the king, and the princes, and Zadok, the priest, and him like the son of Biathar, before the chief of the fathers, the priests, and Levites, one principal household being taken for Eleazar and one taken for Ithamar. Now the first lot came forth to Jehoiarib, the second to Jediah, the third to Haram, the fourth to Seorim. The fifth to Melchizedek, the sixth to Majimin, Majimin, the seventh to Hekaz, the eighth to Abijah. Okay, we'll stop right there. 24 courses given to the priests. Now, the priest had a special function in the temple worship. There were certain, duty, certain duties that they performed. All of the Levites were set apart for the service of the house of God, but only the sons of Aaron were the priests to offer sacrifice and certain other things. In the days of David, he said, okay, we've got 24 families from Eleazar and Ithamar, 16 from Eleazar, uh, 8 from Ithamar. Let's divide um, all of these families and give them each a specific time when they're supposed to perform those priestly duties. 24 courses, okay? And the eighth course, according to verse number... Uh, 10. According to verse 10, the eighth course is the course of Abijah. Why is that important? Turn to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, the gospel of Luke does not begin with the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. It begins with the account of the birth of his cousin, John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, verse number 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. The course of Abiah, okay? 
Abia would be the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Abijah. It's, it's, when, when you come from Hebrew to English, we get Abijah. When you come from Greek to English, we get Abiah. But it's the eighth course. Zacharias is serving in this course. And his wife, verse 5, is one of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. It came to pass while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went in the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying without at the time of incense. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. The angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. We'll stop reading. Uh, right there and talk about the rest of the chapter history tells us and again we have to depend on the records of scribes and rabbis and historians and so forth but history tells us that the eighth course the course of Abiah, would have taken place sometime around mid-june so it's mid-june zecharias is in the temple fulfilling his priestly function and he gets a visit from an angel who says, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. Skip down to verse number 23. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, thus the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach from among men. So Zechariah, he gets this message. He has to stick around in Jerusalem for the Sabbath. Not sure where he lived, how long it took him to get there, but it's reasonable to assume that as soon as Zechariah arrived home, shortly thereafter, Elizabeth conceives, according to verse number 24, which would make the conception somewhere around late June if the course of Abiah is taking place in mid-June. Now, as we read through Luke chapter 1, which we'll not take the time to do this morning, it is evident that Mary, Elizabeth's cousin, conceived six months later, okay? So if Elizabeth conceives in late June, that's verses 23 and 24, then Mary conceives six months later, read down through verse 34, and you'll see this. That would make Mary's conception late, let's see, June is the sixth month of the year. Six plus six, Emma, is... (laughs) 12, our math expert for the morning. 6 plus 6 is 12. The 12th month is December. So John is conceived late June, which means that Christ, or the body in which he would come and live, that conception takes place in late December. Now, if John's conceived late June... And human gestation, typically nine months. Let's see, June, what's six plus nine, Emma? Fifteen, good. But, but, but wait, we only have 12 months. So wait, let's see, what's the third month of the year? Because 15 minus 12 is three. And so the third month is March. We're having John born in late March. Now let's see, Jesus is conceived late December Add nine months to late December, and it's late September. Okay, does that make sense? How we're kind of figuring that? According to Luke chapter 1, Mary conceives six months after Elizabeth, 
who conceives in late June, and you just kind of have to take a couple steps to figure out the dates from there. Now let's look at one other thing, John chapter 1, and then we'll get to the real thing that I want to talk about. Look at John 1 and 2 Corinthians 5. John 1 and 2 Corinthians 5. This is another point or another note of interest pertaining to the time frame of the birth of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians 5. John 1 verse 1. Man, these are great verses. We'll be back here next week. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. We're speaking of a person. That is a proper noun, a particular person, place, or thing, right? The Word. That's There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Second person of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, not was a God. It's what the New World Translation says of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jehovah, Jehovah created Christ, who then created all other things, and many of the modern versions take the same, uh, say the same thing in John chapter one verse one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse fourteen, and the Word, capital W, same individual, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So who was Jesus Christ? He was the creator. He was the one who was there in the beginning. He's the one who made all things. He's the eternal Son of God, from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God, Psalm 90, verse 2. Micah 5, 2. Thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall he come forth in me, which shall be ruler in uh, Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from ever. Lasting. If you are from everlasting, that means there's no beginning point, and such was the Son of God. He was he was he came into the world as a man, he took upon him a body of human flesh on a certain date, but that was not the day that Jesus began. He he was called Jesus when he came to the earth as a man, but he was the eternal Son of God who just simply put on human flesh. Look at Second Corinthians chapter five. Verse number one. Let's see what the script, what term the scripture uses to refer to our bodies. This temporal, disposable container that we live inside of. When you look at me, you don't see me. You see the shell that contains me, right? And I apologize that you have to do that. When I look at you, I don't see you. You are a soul. You have a body. You live inside of that body. One day, you're going to die, and they're going to take your body and stick it in the ground in a hole six feet deep. Because nobody wants to see that anymore. <laughs> right? What does the Bible, what terms does the Bible use to describe this house that we live in? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle... We're dissolved. We have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. And so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For whither in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. We're talking about being at home in the body, absent from the Lord, verse 6. And we live inside of what the Bible calls in verses 1 and 4 a tabernacle. 
If you'd like to, you can write down the cross-reference of 2 Peter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Peter says, As long as I am in this tabernacle, I think it meet to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle. Peter called his body, what 2 Corinthians 5 calls our bodies, a tabernacle. Okay? Why am I putting John 1 and 2 Corinthians 5 together? Why am I putting together the statement that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us with 2 Corinthians 5? Our bodies are tabernacles. There's a lot of typology from the Old Testament concerning the feasts that God gave the nation of Israel and how those match up with specific events in the life of Jesus Christ or other events that take place in the New Testament, the history of the early church. For instance, we mentioned that Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover, the Jewish feast day. Fifty days later was the feast of Pentecost, a Jewish holiday, feast day, which correlates to the coming of the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Holy Ghost into the upper room there in Acts chapter number 2. There was also a feast, one of the most important of the year, called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. And what they would do during the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would erect these temporary structures. That's what a tabernacle is. It's a tent, right? Before the temple, there was the tabernacle. The tabernacle could be picked up and moved from place to place. It was never intended to be enduring the temple. That's a permanent structure. The tabernacle is a temporary structure. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would camp out in booths or in tents. They would bring branches and put them together and, and live there for a week. The word tabernacle literally means to dwell. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place in late September. And it, it, it very possibly was at that time, at the time, around the time of the observance of that feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, where people are dwelling in temporary structures, it would just line up perfectly with the typology for that being the time when Jesus Christ comes to the earth to live in a tabernacle. When, he, when the word is made flesh to dwell, to tabernacle among us. So why do, why do I believe late September as opposed to late December? Because it fits all the reasons that it really couldn't be December 25th because uh, Zechariah served in the course of Abiah because of the Feast of Tabernacles and the possible typology. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'm going to skip over that. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 4. This is what I really wanted to get to. And I, I have less than 10 minutes to explain this. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, first of all, and then we'll go back to Daniel chapter 9. Galatians 4 and Daniel 9. More than the specific date as far as the time of year that Christ came into the world, what we're going to look at has to do with the time in history that Christ came into the world. When you're in school studying history, they divide dates into B.C. and A.D. 
before Christ and then Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Our calendar revolves around the coming into this world of the most important person in history who was God and who was man, who was Jesus Christ. Now, um, I, I guess it's not cool nowadays to say before Christ, and so it's BCE, before the common era, or CE, in the common area, but very common area, common era. But guess what? Same dates revolving around the same person. You can't get away from it. History revolves around the Son of God. Okay? And there was a prophecy from the Old Testament concerning that timeline, that time frame, when Christ would come. That's what I want to show you. First, Galatians chapter 4, look at verse number 4. The Bible says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When did Christ come into the world? In the fullness of time. It was just the right time for the Father to send the Son. And many factors went into that, but one of them was the fulfillment of a prophecy that is made in the book of Daniel. Turn back to Daniel chapter 9 and look with me at verse number 24. Daniel 9 and verse 24, probably the most important portion of prophetic scripture in the Old Testament. I mean, as concerning prophecies that are still future, Daniel 9 is the backbone of prophetic study. Daniel's 70th week is what we're going to read, and we're just going to talk about a little bit of it. But Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, who are Daniel's people, the Jews, and upon thy holy city. What is the holy city of the Jewish people? Jerusalem. Okay. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal the vision, prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem and the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Let's stop and do some math. A score is 20. What is three score? Okay, good. You, you guys are all catching on. Like, what is 60 plus two? So three score and two is 62. Seven and three score and two. So now we have to add seven to 62 and we've got 69. Great. 69 weeks from the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Verse 26 says, After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end thereof shall be with a flood under the end of the war, desolation and ruin. So the prophecy concerns 70 weeks. There is There were seven weeks and three score and two weeks. 69 weeks between the commandment to rebuild the temple and Messiah the Prince. Now that's 69 weeks, and then the clock stops. That leaves one more week yet to run its course. That is Daniel's 70th week. And the chapter goes on to describe Daniel's 70th week as the time when Antichrist will come, make a covenant with the Jewish people, the temple will be rebuilt. Midway through the, the, the week, he'll break the covenant. And it's, it's, it's the time we refer to as 
the tribulation. It is one week. A week is how many days? It is seven days. Each day in the prophecy represents a year. Okay? Just like in Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob is going to serve Laban so that he would be able to marry Rachel, how long did he serve Laban? Seven years. He called it a week. And then Laban tricked him. And in the morning, it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Yikes! The tender-eyed one. It's not what he worked seven years for. Anyway, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is supposed to lay on his side for X number of days, each day representing a year. So if you've got a week, it's seven days. Seven days would equal to seven years. So the 70th week is a seven-year time frame, the tribulation. And, and all of the study of future prophecy is based upon that. But if we've got, if we've got seven weeks... And three score and two weeks. If we got 69 weeks, how many days are in 69 weeks? 483. Okay. 483 days. That would be 483 years. Oh. Siri. <laughs> Okay, 483 years from the commandment, restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Why, why is this so important? The Old Testament not only has prophecy uh, surrounding Christ's birth as to where he would be born and how he would be, be born and who would be present at his birth and who would bring him gifts at his birth. All that's in the Old Testament. Details regarding the life of Jesus Christ are prophesied in the Old Testament. Details concerning the death of Jesus Christ. They're prophesied in the Old Testament. The, the Jewish people, the, the people who subscribe to Judaism, they have the Old Testament scriptures and all the prophecies of Messiah, but yet they say, we're still waiting on him to come. They do not believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of those prophecies, but I've never heard one of them explain the prophecy in Daniel 9 that not only details events surrounding his birth, his life, and his death, but gives the very timeline. There is no way Jesus Christ could not have been the Messiah. He's the only one that came at the time that Daniel said. You see what I'm saying? If it was 483 years after the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, guess what? That happened in the days of Cyrus the Great. And it's been a lot more than 483 years since then. It's been about 2,500 years since then. Okay? So Daniel 9 is a great passage of Scripture, and I've, I've tried to use it in witnessing to a Jew, and I've never really gotten anybody that, that, that knew enough about their Old Testament to have a conversation with me about it. But Daniel chapter 9 pinpoints the time frame for the coming of Jesus Christ in the world, and it's just one more confirmation that he is the Messiah Jewish people were looking for. They missed it, and they crucified him. And it was all part of uh, God's plan so that we could be saved and his plan for the nation itself. But 
there are reasons we don't believe it was December 25. There are reasons we do believe it was probably late September. And there's reason that we, we, just, we know this book is true. And we know that Jesus Christ is the one prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 because of the way of the timeline works. And that's pretty cool, I think. Amen. Next week, we'll talk about the miracle of the incarnation. God manifest in the flesh. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word, the attention paid to it. Thank you for its truth. Help us, Lord, to love it, to live by it, to allow it to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Bless the church service now. Bless the parade this afternoon. And we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.